Morning, everyone. I can see that you are uh, starting to bundle up a little bit more. There's a little, few more sniffles, a little more coughs than, uh, uh, than we've had so far. And uh, uh, that's uh, part, of, part of our season. I, I'm, I'm wondering how deeply you've thought about a, a phrase. Probably because I'm a pastor, I hear it more, more often than other people, but I know that you hear the phrase often, all roads lead to Rome. Ever given, given thought to that, uh, that phrase? People will often um, will state it very confident to me. Like when it comes to religion, all roads lead to Rome is some kind of, of truism that uh, just about everybody should, should, uh, uh, should, should believe in. If they don't, somehow that would, be, uh, that would be unusual. But it's not an obvious phrase, right? All roads lead to Rome is not, it's not necessarily uh, an obvious truism. In fact, in most areas of life, all, all roads lead to Rome is, is actually a crazy proposition. Like, if you're sitting in a coffee shop, all Wi-Fi passwords don't lead you to the internet. Or if you're, uh, even just talk of roads would be, would be one thing. All ships don't lead to Boston, for instance. Some of them go to Baltimore. Some of them go to other ports, you know, all around the world. All, all, all ships don't go to the same place. Or... Uh, all, all math answers don't lead to a passing grade. You know, if you, if you get something wrong on a math test, you don't kind of debate with your teacher, well, all roads lead to Rome. The, kind of all, ro- all answers are in some way partially heading to, to some sense, the, the right answer. No, the, your math teacher would tell you, you got the answer wrong. You, you, need to, you need to study harder. All roads don't lead to Rome. In fact, pretty much the only time that you can take the phrase, all roads lead to Rome, as a given, is if you're in central Italy. And even then, you're, you may run into troubles. Um, originally, the phrase, way back when, got started because in the Roman Empire, all of the, the, the Romans were famous for their, their building of roads, and they deliberately built the, their roads in, in a, a system of, like, spokes on a wheel with all of the roads heading to the, the central uh, capital of the Roman Empire. And they did that not just because, hey, Rome's a popular place and everybody wants to go there. They did that to uh, keep any of the regional cities from becoming too powerful or becoming too central by having all of the roads literally leading to Rome. It was their way of centralizing power and keeping some sense of, of order in the empire. So 2,000 years ago, all roads led to Rome. Now, not so much. It's not a given. The problem in applying the, fro- the phrase to religion is that most religions teach vastly different things. And people will hear little snippets of religion, and they'll hear something about being a good neighbor or uh, uh, dif- different, different uh, things about loving others, and they assume all religions are essentially teaching the same things, but they're superficially different. They just get a little, some of the little details wrong. Little, little details are, are slightly different, but essentially they're the same thing. But that only works out until you actually look at the religions with any, any degree of, uh, of depth, and then you see that all religions are, are only superficially similar, and they're, in fact, fundamentally different. 
they're, they're teaching different things, and they are roads, in fact, that are heading in different directions. Throughout the month of November, we've been studying the Reformation, and we've been, we've been saying that the Reformation can be summarized by five solas or five phrases. We, we started by looking at Scripture alone, and we said that Scripture, uh, the Bible is our sole authority. It is our highest authority, and that we don't put anything else on the shelf next to it. Then we looked at grace alone, and we said, God save, either will save us as a free gift, or he won't save us at all. That, that we are in such a state that unless God freely pardons us, and the Bible says that there is a free pardon available, unless it's a free gift, we, will, we, we would otherwise be hopeless. Then we looked at faith alone, and we said, that free gift is not just freely handed, handed out as an automatic thing, that we receive it by faith alone. There's nothing we need to add to it. There's nothing that we need to do to deserve it. But it is through faith alone that we receive God's free gift. Today we come to the conclusion. And we're going to try and knock off our final two solas, the last two points. And I think in doing so, we're going to answer the question that many people still have. Many people think, I like this idea of being forgiven by God. I like the idea of a free gift and that I don't have to do anything to get it. Uh, this idea that it's faith alone and, and not anything, you know, my performance, that sounds like a really great idea. I, I'm, I'm all for that. But can't one person be saved as a gift by grace through faith? One person could be could do that in faith in Jesus alone, but couldn't another person be, fa- be saved by grace through faith, through faith in, in Buddha, for instance, or, or another person saved by faith in, in Allah, or another person saved by faith in Brahman? Could, couldn't there be different, different directions and names for that faith, but essentially the, 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 the basics are the same? Or, What's wrong by being saved by faith in Jesus and, and Mary, for instance, or by trusting in, in saints or prophets or gurus or relics alongside Jesus? Nobody's, nobody's saying that we need to cancel him out. Nobody's saying we need to put him aside. But couldn't we just add some of these other things alongside, alongside him? Today we look at the final two solas, and they are Christ alone and to the glory of God alone. To help us, I want to start by reading what I think is uh, an important passage in this. It's uh, from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 to 7. And So if you have your Bibles, if you would turn there, and we'll look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 to 7. Starting at verse 3. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher, an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith, and truth. 
Now, I want to start by zeroing in on verses 3 and 4 and see how God wants you to be saved through the faith, uh, through the truth. What what we're seeing here to start off is that God isn't just a uh, a passive observer. He's not just mildly mildly, uh, interested in what's going on, that when it comes to... uh, comes to this area of salvation, God actively wants you to be saved, but to be saved through the truth. Notice what the end of verse 3 and continuing in verse 4 says. It says, God our Savior desires all people to be saved. He wants you to be saved. God is concerned for your salvation. He longs for you to experience that free gift that he worked so hard to, to be able to provide for you. God is a real person with real feelings. And in this area of salvation, you can get thinking that, that, that faith and religion is just a personal thing. It's just a, a private thing that uh, I just need to work this out and figure it out on my own. But as we come to the scriptures, we realize that, that God is a personal being who is personally invested in our salvation. He, he wants Uh, He wants us to be reunited with him. He has real feelings. And when we're separated from him, he feels it. So the Bible says that faith isn't just about you and I. It's mostly about a God who seeks us and who desires our salvation. Matthew 23, 37 describes the heart of God like this. How often would I have gathered your children together as hen gathers her brood under her wings? and you were not willing. See, God looks, us, looks at us as a hen does to her chicks. Uh, she, she seeks to gather them together because there's danger, because there is uh, a, a situation she sees that she wants to protect her chicks from. She wants to rescue her chicks from. And the Bible says that that's the heart of God for each one of us. Now, when I read this verse, I can't help but think of a, uh, a time when Evan was much, much smaller than he is today, and he got stuck in a McDonald's playland in Japan, okay? So there was big, huge playland, and on one side, there's a big, big ball, uh, like a, a room full of balls that they were, pl- they were playing in, and on the other side, there's this ladder that you go up, and in between, big tunnel and in the middle of that tunnel, there's this little plastic window. So Evan climbs up the ladder, somehow gets himself uh, partway down through, through the, uh, the tunnel, and something about the room full of balls, or maybe a kid that was screaming, or whatever it was, freaks him out, and all, I, all Jennifer and I are sitting at the side of, of the playland, and he, he's in the, uh, in, in the little window there, screaming wildly, Okay crying and going on and on, and your heart just goes out to him, right? Your heart feels like that as a parent, and so the obvious thing that you do, you, you call out to him, it's okay, Evan, come on back. He's not moving. So then you go a little bit closer, and you poke your head down the end of the tunnel, and you, you call out a little bit, yeah, come on back, come on. You wave to him, doesn't move. And so at this point, you are left with, every father's uh, stress and, and, and pain, I end up climbing up the ladder into the tunnel, down through the McDonald's Playland set, and have to grab Evan and bring him back out of there. Okay? 
Now, if you think that that would look strange, someone my size doing that in a McDonald's playland in Canada, try and picture me in Japan, okay? I'm sure that there are children that still have nightmares about this, this guy climbing in through the tunnel and, and grabbing a child and walking off with him, okay? That, that, was, that was what I went through because I wanted to save him. I couldn't stand to see him crying and trapped and panicked in that tunnel. And the Bible says that that is the heart of God for us, that, that he is a seeking God, he is a pursuing God, But the Bible also says, if we look at the verse carefully, that having gone up the ladder, climbed through the tunnel, and so much more, that we crawled the other way. We actually went from him and turned from him. And as as he pursues us, we, we run the other way. So we get a sense there of, of, of the heart of God. Often people think if God's loving, you know, if God, if, if God is really the person that you're telling me that he is, well, surely we don't have anything to worry about. Everyone's going to heaven. Like, it, surely everything's going to work out just fine. But look again at 1 Timothy 3, 4. It said God desires all people to be saved, and you feel the heart and emotion of God there. But then it says, and to come to the knowledge of the truth. See, God wants to save people, but truth still matters. God wants to save people, but there is a way that he has provided for us to be saved. It's a little bit like, I, I, I want my daughter Brooke to come home for Christmas. She's in Kingston right now, and I really want her to come home. But if she hops on the train to Montreal instead of to Toronto, then there's not going to be a reunion. My heart for her and my desire to be reunited with her doesn't negate the fact that if you get on a train heading in the opposite direction, we are not going to find one another. And, and that's a little bit about how these, these two, two, two parts of verse 4 come together. God's heart desire to, for us to be saved and his desire that we would be saved through the truth. All roads don't lead to Rome. Ezekiel 18.32 puts it like this, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. See, we wish it would say, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone. So don't worry, it'll all work out in the end. We want God to say that. We want to say, if God's so loving, there's nothing to worry about. But God doesn't say that. He says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, so Do what I've asked you. Just turn and you will receive from me. Turn and you will live. And I want you to notice the emotion in his choice of words. There's no pleasure in this. There's nothing in my heart. It's killing me inside. Get out of the tunnel. Step off the train. Stop heading the wrong way. All roads don't ultimately lead to Rome. Now, it's popular to talk of all roads heading to the same place. Actually, the Bible says that all roads are heading to two places. It's almost right. In Matthew 7, 13 and 14, Jesus describes the roads that get to these two places. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is 
narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Now, we've been saying that that salvation is a free gift. All we've got to do is receive it by faith. But here, the wide road is easy because most people are on it. it. You don't have to think about it. You just follow the crowd, and you just can keep going. And, and there doesn't have to be any deliberate intention. There doesn't have to be any deliberate choice. You just keep going, follow the crowd, and, and it's easy. But he's saying that that path, although it's wide and it's very easy, and a lot of people are on it, so it's well-traveled, it is leading to a wide gate. Don't have to line up to get through. There's just, just easy access. But that path is leading to destruction. And the other path, which we've said, hey, it's, it's free. It's, God has given it to us freely. We don't have to, 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 to work hard to accomplish it in, in that sense. But it's hard because not a lot of people are on that path. It's hard because it's kind of narrow. You, you need to watch your step. You need to walk in a, in a particular direction. But that path, although it's hard, although it's a little narrow, a lot, although there's not as many people on this path, this path, although it's hard, there is a sense of joy and hope and delight because you have a certainty about the destination. This is a path that leads to light, to leads to life. And we're reminded by here the words of Jesus that all roads don't lead to Rome. They really are heading in different directions. So if you're on the wide road this morning, I want you to know that it breaks God's heart. I want you to know that there's emotion. God is emotionally invested in this. He wants you to be saved, but to be saved through the truth. Truth matters. Now that truth leads us to verse 5 in our next point, that there is only one God who deserves alone the glory. In fact, it misleads and dishonors God when we treat things that aren't God as if they are God. We treat them like God. There's only one God who alone deserves the glory. Now, verse 4 introduces a concept of the knowledge of the truth that saves. Then verse 5 spells out two aspects of that saving truth, and we'll look at them in, the next, in, in these next two points. So the first half of the verse says, For there is one God. The idea that there is one God was actually, like, if you're thinking, hey, Paul just says, oh, yeah, for there's one God, everybody's like, oh, yeah, of course there's one God. No, in, in the first century, this was even more countercultural than it is for us today. The, the Greeks and the Romans had all kinds of gods, right? The, the, the Roman emperor demanded to be worshipped as God. The, the Greeks had, had the whole... Uh, pantheon of, of gods. You had A-listers like, like Zeus and, and Poseidon, Apollo and Epaphrodite. But there were plenty of less famous gods too. And while those Greek gods made for interesting superhero mo- movies today, the worship of them was a reality in the first century. That they captured people's hearts and, and stirred people's uh, emotions and sense of, uh, of devotion. But it says that the worship of them riles up the the emotions of the true God. It stirs God God up because those gods ultimately can't save. 
And so they mislead people. They give people a false sense of assurance, a false sense of, of peace, a, a false sense that everything is okay even, on their, even though they're on that train heading in the wrong direction. So believing that there was just one true God was a big step for many people. But then because there is just one true God, the implication is that God is concerned that we don't treat anyone or anything like God either. Notice how Isaiah 42.8 puts it. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Did you know that God cares about his name? There are a number of names given for him in the Old Testament, but God is he, he, he's concerned about his name. The Lord here, written in all capitals, you can see that, it's the unique covenant name of God. It's the name that he, he specially revealed to, to his people in the Old Testament. God has a name, and he's concerned that we use the name. He's concerned that we get the name right. And he's concerned about that because we get in trouble and we start, we, we get in confused when we start making up other names for God because it's in the details that, that, that we can get the true God lost, both in our thinking and in, in, our, in our imagination. If you're, if you're married and you want to get some sense of what this verse is saying, I, I would just encourage you to um, just take an evening. Take an evening and call your spouse um, instead of by her actual name, just use the name of an old boyfriend or girlfriend. And just, just call her that for the evening or, or him that. And, and just see what kind of response that you get, okay? That, that's, a, that's a kind of thing that's going on here. Your spouse isn't ambivalent about whatever name you use for, for your spouse, right? You care. Your, your spouse cares about the name that, that you use because that name comes with a sense of identity, it comes with character, it comes with history, it comes with emotion. Notice that it says, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. See, what was happening was people were saying, we believe in God. We've just got a different name from him. Some of us would like to call him Baal. Others would like to call him Moloch. Um, some people got these little carvings and they said well this is God this is this is how I imagine him and God said I'm kind of particular about the names that you use the the names matter and in fact when you're when you're looking at this little carving and you're thinking that that's God and it's not that that's not helpful for you and that's deeply offensive to me so God says I'll have no part of it they're not God's kills me that you're treating them like gods because they can't save you. Now, on Mother's Day, my mother, she kind of is particular about some things, but she wouldn't be particularly uh, flattered if I said, hey, it's, it's Mother's Day, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to get some flowers. And um, there's, a, there's a woman in my neighborhood who has experienced lactation, and um, I'm going to give the flowers and a nice card to her. My, my mother wouldn't be particularly flattered by that and thinking, oh, well, at least he's celebrating Mother's Day. No, no, she wants the flowers. And she's concerned when I would give those flowers, give the card, make the call to some other woman instead of my mother 
because she knows that not, not only is there, it, it, there's a personal in, engagement, there's a personal relationship involved, it's not just that, but in addition to that, she knows that if I trust someone as mother who is not my mother, if I rely upon someone as mother and they're not my mother, I'm opening myself up to danger, to disappointment. Because ultimately, they're not my mother. And to, to, to anticipate that they would treat me like a, like a mother is to open myself up for all kinds of, of problems. If God's concerned that we get his name right, he's even more concerned that we treat things that aren't God as God. There's an episode in the book of Acts, many of you are familiar with it. Paul and Barnabas head into a city called Lystra. And there's a, uh, there's a person there who hasn't been able to walk since birth. Paul sees the situation and approaches the man and heals him. And people are absolutely struck by, by this, the, the sheer demonstration of power. I think Paul's hope was that they would then glorify God and listen to the good news of his message. But what they do instead is they, they run and grab a priest and they, they get some, some bulls and they, they, they lead them out and they're going to perform a sacrifice to Paul and to Barnabas. Uh, they, in fact, call Paul Zeus. They say, the, the gods have come down to us in human form. This is incredible. And they're about to worship them and to sacrifice to them. Paul and Barnabas aren't flattered, though. They're, they're outraged. They actually tear their clothes and, 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 uh, uh, and, and express just how, how uh, outraged God would be at, at this kind of behavior. Verse 15 records their words when he says, Man, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. See, they're beside themselves to think that these good things that they've intended to point to God and to give him glory are actually being used to point to them and to have people worshiping people. That was the opposite of, of, of their intention. It was the opposite of God's intention. That kind of outrage was shared by many in the Reformation as they declared that God alone deserves the glory, that he alone is worthy of our praise. If you were here last week, you remember me telling you about the story of Martin Luther. And he's on the horse uh, he's, he's riding through and a storm comes over as he's on the way from his home to, to, to university. And as a bolt of lightning strikes the ground very near him and actually throws him from the horse, he instinctively calls out. He prays, St. Anne, help me. His first, his first instinct when in trouble is to pray to a saint, what he would at the time, would have called a saint. Later, however, he would recognize that what he was doing was treating her in a way that only God should be treated. That he was giving glory to a person in a way that only God should be glorified. Now today, the Catholic Church still encourages people to to do 
very much that same thing. Uh, They would encourage you to choose a saint, to pray to a saint, to imitate that saint, to talk to other people about your saint, to encourage, stir up some kind of devotion to them. They would encourage people to visit shrines dedicated to their saint, to show their reverence, to, to participate in feasts in honor of them, and to pray to them for your salvation. The reformers argued, this is like treating Paul like Zeus. This, this can't be right. This is like giving glory to a human that should be given to God alone. And the Catholic Church responded, no, no, you've got this wrong. You're misunderstanding what we're saying. They, they came, there, there's some kind of, of, of gap taking place here. You're, you're just misunderstanding it. They said, they, well, they actually came up with three Latin words. They, they said, there's, there's this thing called latria. That's, that's the true worship of God, and only God deserves latria worship. But there is also dulia. And dulia is the honor and reverence that we're offering to the saints. That's different than latria. Dulia is, is all that we're doing. And then we came up with something called hyperdulia, and that's what Mary alone deserves. So we're, we believe that, that God alone gets the latria glory. We're just giving dulia glory to the saints and hyperdulia to Mary. The problem is that none of the distinction of those words comes from the Bible. And in fact, Deuteronomy 18.11 expressly forbids consulting the dead. But probably more fundamentally, if you're talking to a saint, imitating a saint, trying to get other people to share your devotion to a saint, kind of like you're evangelizing for the saint, and if you're praying for your eternal salvation to a saint, I'm not sure that God would be so impressed with the distinction between the fact that this is just dulia and it's not latria. Now, you don't need to take my, my word for that. Uh, in fact, some of you may, may not be convinced, and that, that's fine. If you disagree, though, I just want to encourage you to do a little experiment for me. Um, I want you to to, to this, this works best if you have a spouse. If it doesn't, you need to do a little bit of, uh, of, of extra work here. But what I'd like you to do is spend um, maybe a day texting an old girlfriend or boyfriend. Just spend the day and sp- send as many um, texts to, to your old boyfriend or girlfriend as you can. Then, if you're able to get together, take lots of selfies together. Lots of selfies with your, with your uh, old boyfriend or girlfriend and post them all over social media. Then, if possible, um, head out for, for coffee, for drinks, for dinner um, and with, with your old boyfriend or girlfriend. Then, after lots of private meals, um, try and buy some expensive present for your old boyfriend or girlfriend. And then, when you come home, explain to your wife that there are actually two words um, two different words in Greek for love. One of them is agape. It's this deep love. And tell her you reserve that exclusively for her. But this, there's another, another word for love called phileo. And it's more just kind of a brotherly love. And that's all that, all that you've got going on with your old boyfriend or girlfriend. And, and after having worked that little um, experiment out, if, if you could report back to me, and we'll just to see if there is, in fact, 
any, uh, any, any distinction, if, if the, 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 the difference in words, the explanation of the Greek, if that, if that kind of clears things up, okay? So, there is only one God, and he alone deserves our glory. Let's save our prayers, our evangelism, our sacrifice, and our devotion for him alone. That brings us to our final point in verses 5 to 7. There is only one mediator through whom we can be saved. Now, there's something about us that wants to define our Savior, that wants to define our own path of salvation. But there's only one mediator through whom we can be saved. Verse 5 and 6 puts it like this. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Who could be qualified to represent us before a holy God? Uh, The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. So who's going to stand before him? The Bible also says that God is holy and his eyes are too pure to look on evil. So so who could be our our representative? Like, could Justin Trudeau stand before before God as our representative? Could could Austin Matthews get the job done? Would would Mother Teresa or the Pope, could could anyone be good enough or holy enough to, to, to bring our cause before a God who is so holy? Even the angels cover their eyes in God's presence. He's so pure. And because there was no one, God himself became man in the person of Jesus Christ and lived the holy life we couldn't. God became man to bridge the gap between God and humanity. And he did that because he's a God who longs to rescue us. Jesus famously declared in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, it's not just a better way. Some kids would say, hey, my jacket's better than yours. It's not not just that. It's not just better. It's not even the best way. Some fans might say, you know, like, like the Toronto FC is like the best soccer team. He's not just saying it's the best way. It says that he's the only way. He is the truth. He's the only truth. He's the only life. There is no other path to the Father except through him. The reason for that is given in verse 6. It says Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. Now you and I hear the word ransom and we assume there's been a kidnapping. But that's not the word here. This word comes from the world of the first century slave markets. The ransom was a price that was set by the slave owner for that slave to be set free. That's the word here. And the, the, the verse says that Jesus paid that price with his own life. And the question needs to be asked, would he have gone to all the trouble of coming to this earth if there was some other way? Would he have gone to the trouble of enduring all that he did, all the rejection, all the pain that he went through throughout his life, if there was another way? Would Jesus have endured the beatings, the trials, and the humiliation, if there was any other way? And then 
would Jesus, the Son of God, have been crucified in abject humiliation before a watching crowd if there was even a hint of any other way? There is one way. There is one path. Despite all the clarity of Scripture that there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, the Catholic Catechism calls Mary the mediatrix. It's not a word that we use frequently. It's just a female version of mediator. Article 969 says, Taken up to heaven, she did not lay aside this saving office, but by her manifold intercession continues to bring us the gifts of eternal salvation. Therefore, the Blessed Virgin is invoked in the church under the titles of advocate, helper, benefactress, and mediatrix. Again, and this is consistent with what we've seen through the whole series, there's one word that helps us to distinguish the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church and the classic teachings of Protestantism. And that word is alone. So there's nothing here that's rejecting the fact that Jesus is a mediator. He's just not the only one. He just needed a little help, according to the catechism here. He's just not alone in his role as mediator. He has a helper, and according to the 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 uh, catechism, the helper's name is Mary. In case there was any confusion but what, by what was meant by this, the Catholic Church clarifies Mary's title of mediatrix arises from her cooperation in the incarnation and in the redemption of mankind. She was helping Jesus out. She was cooperating in the, pro- in the process. Even the Catholic use of the rosary bre- prayer beads makes it clear how prominent that she how prominent a role she gets in comparison to God. The rosary is a way of remembering a set of prayers. You go through the various decades, uh, uh, various sets of ten prayers. But interestingly, Mary gets ten prayers for every one that God gets. Ten prayers for Mary, one for God. Ten prayers for Mary, one for God. The reformers argued, glory, God, glory goes to God alone. He doesn't, he doesn't like to share his glory with others. Jesus didn't need any mediator helpers. On the cross, he called out, it is finished. It's done. And he did it all. So there's one mediator between God and man, and it's by Christ alone that we're saved. If you haven't Yet put your faith in Christ alone. I would urge you to come to him today and hear the appeal of a God whose heart goes to you, who calls to you, and who seeks you. He desires all people to be saved, but he reminds us all roads don't lead to Rome. They're not all going in the same direction. Don't put your trust in someone who can't save you. And don't give the glory that God alone deserves to anything or to anyone else. Let's look to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're overwhelmed by your great love for us.
Thank you for sending Jesus to rescue us. Thank you for making a way for us to turn to you. And I pray, Father, for anyone here this morning who hasn't yet put their faith in Christ alone. Would you help them to see clearly what your scripture teaches? Would you give them the courage to put their faith in you? I pray for anyone here who's still sitting on the fence, giving the glory that you alone deserve to others. Give them, Father, the humility to put all their eggs in one basket, to glorify, glorify you with their words, with their lives, and with their trust. For we praise you in the name of Jesus Christ.